You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about your financial plans, are you diversified? After the year we had in 2022, it is a really good question. Is it time you rebalanced or made other adjustments? Help make sure your investing strategy is right for you. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. People having to appeal to women as much as men when they're asking for political donations, funders having to look to women as much as men when they're looking to grow their funds. It is going to change what power looks like in this country and how it's accessed. So a change up in that realm to me can only be good. Hey, everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So thinking about a company called Polyvore, does anybody remember Polyvore? It was this social commerce website that was launched around 15 years ago where community members could post ideas for outfits and other fashion-y things. And then other people could look at them and post likes and comments and, of course, buy stuff. It was pre Instagram. It was pre-Pinterest rage. And eventually it had monthly unique users to the tune of about 20 million before it was purchased by Yahoo and then it changed hands again and then it was eventually shut down. Now, I was not on Polyvore. I am not that cool. In fact, I probably would never have heard of Polyvore, but I had a teenage girl in the house. My daughter, Julia, who is now 26, you know her from our mailbag segments, she was right on it. In fact, she was onto so many different trends that at one point, the editor of Seventeen magazine convened a panel of Julia and her friends in our living room and spent a couple of hours just interviewing them. I often thought that I would have done incredibly well if I had put my money into the publicly traded companies that passed through Julia's lens. And the thing about it is, she was not the only one. Teenagers are not only great forecasters, they are big drivers in the economy. 
According to a recent study from Statistista, teenagers spend an estimated $63 billion annually on fashion alone. And because they often care more than many adults about today's most pressing issues, social upheaval, climate change, a political system that seems more and more restrictive on their rights, they have shown they are willing to spend their hard-earned money on companies with missions that align with their values. One study from Business Wire found 62% of Gen Z consumers prefer to buy from sustainable brands, 73% are willing to pay more for eco-friendly, mission-driven products, and companies are taking note of the fact that this youngest generation of consumers is essentially requiring them to take tangible action. A study from Think Now found that Gen Z is less likely to support companies that make public commitments, not because they don't believe them, but because they want to actually see it with their own eyes. And here's the thing, this is not new. We tend to think of today's teens as more aware of social issues and more able to easily tell their friends about something suspicious they heard about some brand because they have access to social media 24-7. But if we look back in history, teenagers have always been there, shaping America's economy behind the scenes and demanding more from big business. My guest today, Maddie Kahn, has brought many of these lesser-known or flat-out forgotten teens and young women in history to our attention in her new book, Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. Maddie's an award-winning editor and writer. Her work has been published in The New York Times, Washington Post, Harper's Bazaar. She was the culture director at Glamour, where she covered women's issues and politics, and a staff editor at Elle. Maddie, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. That is an impressive bio. And clearly, your work has not just focused on teens, but on women of all ages. Where'd the idea for this book come from? I mean, everything you said in your introduction feels so right on to me. I think I've always been interested in where culture happens. And certainly teenagers aren't the only drivers of culture in America or in the world, but they are on the vanguard of so much of what we accept about pop culture. But I felt like in my work at Elle and Glamour that they were often really given short shrift in the politics space. So we kind of take it at face value that, of course, young people are driving what we all think of as cool, what we think of as relevant. but it's sort of held at arm's distance the idea that we would take into consideration what young people think of as important. And the intersection of those two things was really interesting to me. And then because of the work that I was doing, I profiled Greta Thunberg in 2018. I spent tons of time with the young people out of March for Our Lives. And I felt like the conversations that they were having were so politically astute that I actually thought maybe I would write to your earlier point about what was going on with this generation of young people such that they were such extraordinary, capable, intelligent political actors. I, along with every other millennial, saw how young activists were using social media, how they were talking back to politicians. And that felt so fresh um, and new and exciting. And, and I really loved being around them. And I wanted to spend more time with them in book-length format. But like the good journalist that I am, I decided to do some research before I decided to bank the next three years of my life on a book. And 
I was quickly shown uh, a different path just by the books that are out there and the research that's out there that teenage girls have been in that role of talking back to politicians, of expressing themselves, of leading movements for as long as there have been young people in this country. And the book got a lot bigger because of that. And it became much more of a history book, although it continues into the present. And what I really wanted to look at was how does that work? Where do teenage girls get their power from? How do they gather? What do they bring to their activism? And the book is really about answering that. So here at Her Money, we're interested mostly in a a particular type of history, right? We're interested in the economic history of women, the history of young women with money and the idea that they could use their money to step into their power. The young women that you looked at over time, when did they start to to have money, to make money, to assert control over their own money. Can you give us a sense of this arc and how it showed itself to you? Yeah, I'm obsessed with this question because it actually is what sparked the first chapter of the book. I wondered a lot about where I wanted to start the book. And when I first started doing the research, I thought a logical place to start is with the invention of the teenager as a concept, which dates back sort of to the 1930s. And one of the reasons that that term was coined and that that cohort of people came into being is actually because of exactly what you're talking about, the recognition that there were a group of people in this country who had money to spend and were going to use their marketplace power to affect culture. And that is really what adolescence and and teenagerhood became about. And so at first I thought, well, that's a perfectly logical place for me to start. You get into the 1930s and then you slowly segue into the civil rights movement, where obviously we all know that students played such an extraordinary role. Again, the humility required to write a book, I realized that was so wrong. And actually the place to trace the beginning of these kind of forces that I was identifying to was the 1830s, where girls were employed en masse in the thousands at the textile mills that were opening on the eastern seaboard in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and sort of up and down the East Coast. And the reason these mills were places of such extraordinary transformation for girls is not because I would ever say it was some utopian workplace environment. Obviously, there was a lot of abuse. The conditions were not what we would think of as appropriate for young people to be in. But at the same time, I think it's so important to stress that it was an absolute revolution for girls between the ages of sometimes 10, 20, 12, 14, 16, 18, to be given wages to spend as they liked. And that had never happened in this country before. And it changed these girls who were living together writing together often, starting magazines together, reading together, learning together, sleeping in the same boarding houses, going to work together, figuring out what they wanted from their futures in ways that just were not possible when they were living on family farms isolated from each other. And one of the things that told me, oh, this is where this book needs to start, in addition to the fact that these girls went on strike and led walkouts and did incredible things for a cohort of 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds in some cases to do, was that they wrote about shopping. They wrote about how they spent their money. They wrote about buying watches for the first time, buying their own clothes, buying shoes. Some of them wrote about saving money, about wanting to go to these new seminaries that were just starting to open, what became Mount Holyoke or other colleges, saying, I want to 
bigger education. I want more for myself. So I'm going to set aside this portion of my money every week to make sure that I can go there. And it was an absolute revolution. I think it's one that scholars are just beginning to take seriously. How was it that these girls decided to strike? Well, partially they decided because they felt they had something to lose. They knew what it was like to feel that sense of independence. They knew what it was like to start to think about a future for themselves independent of their families. And the idea of that being compromised in some way, well, the threat and the stakes were very, very real. So I started with the Low Mill Girls. That's chapter one. And I talk a lot about just what they bought. I say centuries before the money diaries that we all know so well as an internet format, these girls were writing down everything that they bought in a given week. And it just emancipated them and set them free. I love you called the chapter Material Girls. Yes. And it's perfect because it is so modern. And we think of these young women, and you're right, I mean, they were at grade school, some of them. We think of children that age being children, and they were really, in many ways, so mature. How did coming into that money change them? I mean, I've always sort of felt that, and I've been writing about uh, people with money and women with money for three decades now. And, and I've always sort of felt that when we as women are earners in a substantial way, that that drives us to actually take more responsibility for our money. That drives us to take more control. It drives us to explore things like investing. Is that what you saw with them? How did having money and earning money change them? Such a good question. One thing that was interesting to me as I was starting to look at this period is what was the expectation for what these young women would do with their money? Because when I first came to this idea, I thought, well, surely they're just expected to send their wages home to their fathers, to their families, to support their male siblings who are going to school in many cases. And in France and in parts of America, that was very much the expectation for young women working in, in textile mills or in factories. But actually, in America, in the way that these textile mills, these early mills, in the beginning before they become more industrialized and sort of a working lower class really develops that are going to spend the rest of their lives working there. At the beginning, the money was really understood to belong to the women who'd earned it. And so there was a sense if you wanted to send your money home to support your parents or in many cases, if your father had died and your mother needed support, of course, you would share the wealth, so to speak. But there was definitely a keen sense that it was your money, your decision about how to allocate it. Uh, and I think it did make these girls feel First of all, incredible pride, which we know because they wrote about it. They talk about going to some of these stores and saying, no one was ever prouder than I was in that gown, one of them says, which is just like, who hasn't experienced that? Buying something that you love with your hard-earned cash is one of the most formative experiences I think a woman can have. I also think it's no accident, to your point, that many of the girls who came out of these mills had the kinds of careers that simply were not possible in the 1830s. So they grew up to be the very, very first teachers, women who were teaching in schools. They grew up to be writers, journalists in some cases. It was this formative experience. And again, I don't want to paint it as though it was universally positive for everyone, but it was this opportunity to see themselves as independent actors in a way that primed them to expect more out of the rest of their lives. So I think that the act of earning money, of saying your work has worth, material worth, that we're going to reward you for, and it is your just compensation, gave them an expectation that they're going to go out in the world and their work is going to continue to have worth. 
you get that message early and I think it changes you. And for a lot of these young women, it changed them. And I see that kind of dynamic happen throughout the book. One of the other places where money comes up or shopping, things that people think of as frivolous, maybe unwise people. One of the places that comes up is in the civil rights movement. I couldn't help but notice that over and over again, when some of these young women who became freedom riders who worked to integrate their schools, when they talked about what was that moment that they realized things were not fair or that they wanted to do something about the injustice that they faced in their lives, so often it came back to being in a store, of having their money accepted, but their humanity not ratified in some way. They could shop downtown, but they couldn't try on the shoes. They could buy a hat, but they couldn't put it on in the store. And that sense of my money is good here, but my personhood is not valued here was the lit match that triggered some of the most consequential movements we had in this country. So I think the relationship between women and spending money and earning potential at the root of things that seem totally unrelated to that are some of those same questions. It feels like we throughout history have taken a few steps forward and then a big step back and then a few steps forward and a big step back. And I'm thinking about the period from The 1950s, after World War II, when we didn't really have a need for Rosie the Riveter anymore, up until almost the 1970s. And it wasn't until the late 70s when a woman was allowed to get a credit card in her own name. She had to get one in her husband's name. What happened there? Well, I think a lot of times, unfortunately, opportunities for women have coincided with periods in which men, for one reason or another, could not take advantage of the full spectrum of possibilities open to them. So in times of war, when men are overseas and the job market is more open to women and there's an expectation that women are maybe working on behalf of the country, we do love self-sacrifice in a woman, I think. There were possibilities that were available to women that when men came home from war, it was seen as undignified almost to deny a man returning from war the opportunity to work for his wage, to provide for his family. And so the patriotism that had driven women into the workplace became used against them. If you love your country, you'll go back home. You'll stop trying to take a man's job. Of course, now we think of those things as preposterous, or hopefully we do. But that, I think, was part of the expectation that if you could be supported by your husband, you were going to do the good American thing and, and do that. I also think that we have known from the Lowell Mill Girls on that, of course, Many women who don't have access to capital for one reason or another have had to work and have had no choice but to work. But their labor isn't valued. Certainly, it hasn't been valued in the same way that men's labor has been valued. I think you're right that the pendulum swing is sort of like a fact of American progress. But second wave feminism, of course, made possible not just the work itself, but the ambition, the ability to express what you wanted from your professional life as something independent from your personal life and your family life. And it's interesting, too, to me, having written this book about young women, to think about where young women figured into second wave feminism, since so much of what that movement was about was about the workplace that they weren't yet in. But I think that is what The idea of what you should do for others has pushed women out of pursuing the full slate of opportunity that they want to. And I hope that as culture, we can actually get a little bit more selfish and realize that that's no way of doing business. I love that idea. And I hope the very same thing. When we come back, I want to fast forward into the future. I want to talk about where we are today. I want to talk about the pressures that these young women are under, but also 
the opportunity that is at hand. We'll do that in just a sec. We're going to take a very quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you take a look at your financial plans, are you diversified the way you want to be? And when is the last time you rebalanced your portfolio or made sure you're invested in the assets and allocation appropriate for you? Look, we all need to make tweaks and adjustments to our financial lives, sometimes small ones, sometimes big ones. Thankfully, Edelman Financial Engines can help no matter what change your money might need most. Visit planEFE.com slash hermoney to learn more and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. And we're back with Maddie Kahn. She is the author of the new book, Young and Restless. So we are at such an interesting moment. Today's generation of young women is stepping up because their fundamental freedoms are being taken away. How do you see today's young women wielding their economic power? Well, first of all, I think, yes, absolutely. The the intersection between the rights that you have bodily or otherwise is going to affect your earning potential. First of all, if you're forced to have a child before you're ready or carry a baby or have to travel and spend money to get an abortion, those are all economic concerns as much as they are political concerns. And so I think this is the right place in a lot of ways to be having this conversation about how the liberties or lack thereof affect your own economic outlook as a young woman. I mean, I think that young women have emphasized that this issue is tremendously important to them. I came of voting age at a time where the expectation was that politicians would never talk about abortion, that it was seen as a third rail, something not to be discussed because it was too much of a divider, too consequential, too hard to talk about in a clear and concise way. And I think the elections of the past few years have demonstrated how wrongheaded that was, something I'm glad to see. I think young women expect men and women who are running for public office, certainly not just women, to have a strong voice on these issues. They expect them to be front and center the way climate change is expected to be talked about, justice is expected to be talked about, reproductive freedom is expected to be talked about. We are not going to stigmatize this issue and any further because look where it's gotten us. And so I think a sense of uh, demand for candor and frankness from politicians is something young people demand across many different issues. And certainly reproductive freedom is no exception. I think a lot of young people admire the way someone like a Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who wears hot pink to be standing in the Capitol and who wore a pin on the night she won her second term, she wore a pin that said bans off our bodies. I think they expect that kind of first of all, visual communication, and also, of course, the rhetoric to back it up. But I also think it's affecting young women in other ways, including where are they going to live? Where do they want to go to college? Those are choices about your profession and about your career. And if you're making them in part based on where you feel you'll have the most freedom, certain states that you might have once considered are off the table. And that is something I think we're just going to see more and more of in the years to come as the map becomes increasingly a patchwork blanket of where people have more freedoms and fewer. I wrote a book a few years ago called Women with Money that looked at the fact that despite the fact that we can't seem to make a lot of headway with the gender wage gap or that it's pennies at a time, which is so frustrating, there are a couple of signs that point to the fact that women are on the verge 
of having more money. When you look at the number of women compared to the number of men graduating from college, earning graduate degrees, there's so many more women than men. When you look at inherited wealth and how that is expected to flow into the hands of women because we're going to inherit twice. We're going to inherit both from our parents and from the husbands that we will outlive. It's pretty clear that women will, within a decade or so, have significantly more money. What do you think we'll see change in society as a result? I wish I had a crystal ball and I wish I knew for sure because it's tantalizing to consider. I think one of the things in some ways working on this book was a reminder that simply the presence of women in a movement or uh, in society is not a panacea, that women are as diverse a coalition as human beings since we are half the population and there are all kinds of women who are going to spend money in all kinds of ways. So I wouldn't want to be too predictive about exactly what I think is going to happen. But I, I do think that women who have power have demonstrated uh, pragmatism in terms of both how they wield that power and how they hold on to it that I hope portends a time of greater collaboration. We're certainly going to need it. I think that it's no accident that women are in a lot of ways overrepresented in the climate movement because not just for gendered comparisons about Mother Earth, but because I think women are future oriented and they know that you could earn all the money in the world now. But if in 10 years you can't insure your house because of where you live, it's not necessarily going to buy you out of all of your problems. That would be my most optimistic take about where we're headed. It's impossible to know because it's never happened to see wealth leveled in this way and to see access to capital leveled in this way. What I would say is it's hard for me to imagine it being a bad thing for that equality to come into view. It's hard for me to imagine what the negative consequences of that would be. I think a more representative society where more people have access to the levers of power is inevitably going to be a more just society. I don't know exactly what shape that will take, but that equity really being divided up, people having to appeal to women as much as men when they're asking for political donations, funders having to look to women as much as men when they're looking to grow their funds. It is going to change what power looks like in this country and how it's accessed. And I think we can see the ways that it's been going so far have not yielded what we want. So a change up in that realm to me can only be good. My friend Sally Krawcheck, she is the CEO of Elevest. She likes to say nothing bad happens when women have more money. I love that whole phrase. And by the way, for all of the folks who are listening today, if you haven't tuned into Sally's interview or any of the interviews, in fact, on Karen Feinerman's new podcast, How She Does It, this is your reminder. This is a new podcast produced by my team at Her Money. We are very excited about it. So please follow it and start listening. And Sally's interview, of course, was great. As we wrap this up, Maddie, is there one more story from the book that is perhaps your favorite? Is there one that you keep coming back to because it resonated the most with you? There are a lot of stories that I love. I think one of the stories that I come back to that I think of as a success story for the book, maybe in a way that people don't anticipate, is I write a lot in the book about the process of schools becoming co-ed in the United States. It's a fairly new development for girls to have access to the same caliber of co-ed education as boys have had historically for centuries, obviously. And I write about some of the girls that led the charge to integrate gender-wise places like Yale 
Yale, and in particular, a school in New York called Stuyvesant that was and remains one of the best math and science high schools in the country. Uh, There was a young woman named Alistair Rivera who was enrolled at an inferior institution and who badly wanted to go to Stuyvesant. Science and math were the subjects she really excelled in, and they'd never taken a girl, and they weren't about to change for her. And she brought a lawsuit to sue for the right to just sit for the entrance exam. No guarantee, but just to have access to the opportunity to attend. She won that case, and it was hard for her. She was an introvert. She hadn't wanted to be an activist. She had just wanted to go to the best high school. And in the end, she actually didn't go to Stuyvesant, despite probably qualifying. Her parents moved upstate. She went to a great school in upstate New York. And history sort of left her there to the degree that people know that story. They know that Stuyvesant then subsequently accepted girls. But Alice grew up. And she had a choice about what she wanted to do with her life. And I think she could have totally been an activist for the rest of her life. That would have been amazing. She could have decided to do any number of things, but she became a doctor. And when I interviewed her for this book and I asked her, how do you feel about this future that you've had as a result of doing this amazing thing and then not actually getting to go to Stuyvesant? And she basically said that she felt like her life had validated completely the work that she'd done as an adolescent. Here she was, a community doctor, helping her neighbors, doing work that she loved. The goal for me in writing this book was to show that there are so many paths now available to young women that can give them that fulfilled life. And the dream, I think, is for every girl and young woman and woman to be able to pursue the kind of career that's going to be meaningful to her, whether that's being on the front lines of activism or becoming a doctor or starting a company. What is going to make you feel whole? What is going to allow you to live in the world in a way that you want? And I love that Alice felt like doing this work pursuing the path that she did was an expression of the same thing that her adolescent self had wanted to achieve. And it felt to me like a really full circle whole story because not all the stories in the book are so happy. Maddie Kahn, author of Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like I've learned so much. Where do you like to send people to buy the book and to learn more about you? Well, you can learn all the deets at MaddieKahn.com, so M-A-T-T-I-E-K-A-H-N, and you can buy the book wherever books are sold. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, you guys, it's Jean. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love because I love it, Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business and economics and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, even Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics like whether AI has a sense of humor and whether two CEOs are better than one. If you are curious like me and just looking to better understand the world around you, you will find it on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. 
Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. We are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, joins us for the conversation. So, Jules, at the top of the show, I told this story about how the folks from Seventeen Magazine actually had a focus group at our house with you and some of your friends because you were on to the hot trends and the hot ideas even before the editors of Seventeen Magazine knew that they were hot trends or hot ideas. Do you remember that? No, but I mean... Really? You don't remember that? It's fine if you don't remember. It was one of those like years where... I don't know, you would say something and then it would show up in the newspaper as like the hottest stock. You would say something and then I would hear that Hearst was investing in that company. You were sort of one step ahead. And Maddie and I were talking about the fact that teenagers, teenage girls largely, they lead the way. They know about things that are trendy before they're trendy. And I think about Sydney. Totally. My niece, Julia's cousin, Sydney runs this very cool company called Sydney, which she spells with like threes and many Ys. And people like Willow Smith and Olivia Rodrigo buy her clothing that she silk screens in Brooklyn. What do you think you're a few years past being a teenager now, but why do you think it is that teenagers are so clued into what's leading edge? I don't know. I think so much of what is leading edge is coined by like the younger demographic, right? So it's the first time in my career where I really am in some retrospect a boss, right? I'm becoming a leader and I'm growing. And so much of what I do is even though you're 20-something-year-old girl who works in social media and trend casting, for lack of a better word, I'm looking at the younger team. I'm talking to the interns now that it's intern summer season and asking them, oh, who are you following? What are you liking? What are you seeing? And they're naming people that I've never even heard of before. So it's really interesting. I think as the creator economy expands, there are so many niche audiences and so many new ways to connect. And I think this younger demographic is more empowered to like be themselves and find what's cooler for them than ever before. And so I just think there's like a whole world to do it that there just hasn't been before, right? Like when you were growing up, there was no social media. When I was growing up, I guess it was just the start of it and it was polyvore, but I created an Instagram account when Instagram was created. And now there are people who are doing that with new apps. And I think that the lesson in all of this for me, but also for you at 26 years old, is that we have to listen. Totally. Right? That we have to pay attention and we can't discount the voice of the next generation or the next generation is going to leave us behind. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Big lesson. All right. Let's take some questions. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Sarah. She writes, hi, Jean and team. 
When I graduated college 15 years ago, my cousin worked for an investment firm and got me set up with a Roth IRA. Because I was a family member, the minimum requirement for the first deposit was waived. Looking back, I'm of course grateful for her help. I don't think I would have known to start investing in that way without her guidance. Throughout my 20s, I had jobs that didn't offer retirement benefits, so my Roth IRA was key. I'm forever grateful. Now that I'm in my mid-30s and I've become more financially literate, I'm concerned that the Roth IRA is in a mutual fund. It's doing just fine, but I would prefer to manage it on my own to avoid fees, and I would like to invest in index funds. My cousin has since retired, so there would be no hard feelings there. I'm wondering what the process would be to move my Roth IRA out of a mutual fund managed by an investment firm and into an account I can manage myself, if that's even possible. Would there be penalties and tax hits? Is it a complicated or simple process? Should I hire a professional to help me? If so, what kind of professional? Or should I just leave it be in the mutual fund and go on my merry way? I always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. Hey, Sarah. Well, first of all, really good for you for getting started so early when you didn't have an employer plan to help you out. That was great. It was absolutely the right move. A lot of people don't have employer plans these days, and they should be setting up Roth IRAs on their own. What you're talking about is actually very easy. It's called a direct transfer And if you want to manage this money yourself, if you want to put it into vehicles that charge lower fees, a lower expense ratio, I am all for doing that. Basically, pick the firm that you want to move the money to, call the firm and ask them to help you move it over, which they will, by the way, be really, really glad to do. It's called a direct transfer. And it involves basically no costs. You move it from Roth IRA to Roth IRA. You will have no taxes involved. I'm not exactly clear on the type of mutual fund that you have your money in right now. If it's in a proprietary fund, a fund that is not sold on the open market, you may need to actually liquidate the fund from within your old Roth, then move the money rather than the shares over to the new Roth where they would be sold. But either way, you're not going to have taxes, you're not going to have penalties, and it's going to take you a lot less time than it took you to write this letter to me. So I would say just go for it. The only thing to keep in mind is that you do not want to get a check in the mail. You don't want to take custody of this money yourself. That's where you get yourself into trouble. And that's why I'm suggesting pick a firm, ask them to help you just make sure this goes as smoothly as possible. Then it'll be set up in a new account. You'll get online access and you can go from there. Easy as pie. You really make it sound so easy. It is really easy. It's super easy. And the reason it's so easy is that the firm that she's going to move her money to is going to be so happy to have her money that they are going to do it all for her. And this is when, if you've got money in a 401k, if you've got money in a retirement plan with your employer and you're looking to move it into an IRA, Mm -hmm. it's also super easy because any firm with IRAs wants your money. They just want assets under management. So you call them and you say, I want to do a rollover. 
they do it for you. Hmm. Really, really easy. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. There you go. All right. Should we get into the next one? Okay. Our next question comes from Brianna. She writes, Hello, I'm a university student who just finished freshman year. Dedicating my summer to tackling my loans, all the resources I found were academic and hard to understand. But I stumbled on How to Money at my local library, and I'm a little convinced it was meant to be. I just finished the book, and I wanted to thank your organization for giving me the first step to financial literacy. Women are so often barred from the finance bro world, it's so intimidating to start educating yourself until you absolutely have to. I also wanted to ask if you had any other reading recommendations for someone who isn't very money savvy, trying to get into investing as a side thing since I'm pursuing a creative career, which I know lacks job stability. I... I'm just smiling, Brianna. Thank you. Thank you so much for writing about the book. Thank you for liking the book. We're very glad that it's in your hands. If I were sending you to read another book after this book, I think I would send you to Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, which is written by Erin Lowry. She's a woman that we've had on this show a number of times, and she sort of looked into all different aspects of investing. It's very easy to read. I know you're not a millennial, but I think that much of what she went through will apply to you. And I also, and I'll send this to you in an email, I'd love to invite you because you're interested in investing to be my guest in our investing fix course for the next few months and see if that's something that resonates with you. Our investing fix class, which is taught by me and by Karen Feinerman, who is the host of the new podcast that Her Money is producing called How She Does It. We run it like an investing club and you pick investments, you can pitch investments. We're building a portfolio of investments that you can buy for your own account if that's something that you like to do. It's a group of women. We get together every other Monday night. We have a really good time. And so I hope that you'll want to join us, maybe bring a few of your friends and, and we'll see how that goes as well. But thanks so much for writing to us and thanks for the nice words. And Jules, thanks for being here as always. Thanks for having me and good luck. She said she's trying to get into investing because she's pursuing a creative career, which she knows lacks job stability. And I just think that's a maybe a pigeonhole mindset. I agree, actually. I work in a pretty creative field. I'm not in the land of theater or dance, but I work in creative. I'm not crunching numbers and I'm not blasting emails all day. I'm creative. And I think some people would say if somebody wants to go work in social media, they are freelance and it's not job stable, but there are agencies and there are in-house roles. And so I don't know if Brianna is a dance major, but if you are a dance major and you want to be a professional dancer, that doesn't mean there are other ways in which you can also have a stable career. Yeah, I think so. I dated a guy before your dad. We were actually discussing the difference between actors and journalists. And he made the point, he said, most of the journalists I know who want to be working in journalism are working in journalism, right? It's a creative field, but it's a creative field that has established positions. 
I don't know that that's true for dancers. One of the things that comes along with running this mailbag is that we don't know all the information, right? Right. right. And I agree with you. I think if you have a creative career and you're an actor or you are a dancer or you own a restaurant, right? I think the goal is that when the money is coming in, you try to save. When the money's coming in, you try to put some guardrails around yourself so that you can structure a life that will carry you forward to the next job, the next gig, the next endeavor. But I think that another way that you can do that is by finding a passive income stream. And that's kind of what Brianna's talking about here, right? Whether you take a chunk of money and you use it to buy a rental property that can then spill off some rental income for you for decades to come, whether you buy dividend-paying stocks, whether you build a portfolio. Like, she's thinking about this in absolutely the right way. And so I think you have a very valid point that some arts and sciences careers or some artsier careers like the one that you're in and the one that I'm in do have the opportunity for more established full-time employment and some don't. So it's great, I think, that she is heading in this direction and thinking about her future this early. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck, Brianna. We're going to take a quick break. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. And we are back with your money tip of the week. There has been a lot of social media excitement about the Barbie movie, a lot of excitement overall, actually, and it's led to a lot of viral excitement about what people are calling the Barbie stock. That would be Mattel, ticker symbol M-A-T, the maker of Barbie dolls. And look, as much as we love the TikTok videos hyping the movie and Mattel's stock, You still might be wondering, once a stock has seen a viral pop like that, is it too late to buy it? The conventional wisdom on Wall Street is that when the general public knows about an investment, it is too late. And movies, toys, even stocks, well, they go viral for all kinds of reasons. But always trying to get in early is the equivalent of trying to time the market. It is impossible to make money consistently. My advice, first, look at the fundamentals and try to understand if there's a longer-term fundamental story that you can get behind. And then if you still want to make a trade based on something you spotted online, well, you can go for it if you're sure you're using money that you can afford to lose because anything that goes up 
very quickly can also come down very quickly. In other words, you should consider it a high-risk play. For more tips on buying and selling stocks, join me for Investing Fix, our investing club for women. Visit investingfix.com. We spell it investing fix with two X's for more information. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Maddie Kahn for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, for intimate cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon.